Hi, everybody. This is Fran Fraschello. Welcome to another episode of World of Basketball. Before I introduce our guest for this week, I want to remind you uh, to subscribe to the show and give us five stars. It really, really helps us out. We're bringing you great guests from around the basketball world, from every corner of the globe, and uh, we are having a blast with it. Uh, coming up, our guest is going to be Kirk Penny, New Zealand's own, the first New Zealander to ever play in the Final Four for Wisconsin. But before we get to Kirk, I just want to wrap up what has been a great 10 days of basketball for me because it does have an international flavor. Uh, the TBT ended on Tuesday night. That's the basketball tournament, 24 teams, winner take all, uh, mostly college players from the United States who have played some NBA, a lot of G League, but also around the world. Guys that are still playing at a high level uh, and, and playing their basketball around the world. The Golden Eagles, the Marquette University alumni team, knocked off sideline cancer. And uh, it was fitting that uh, after three or four tries of climbing the TBT mountain, getting to the quarterfinals and the semifinals and to the championship game last year before they lost to Carmen's crew, Golden Eagles on a Travis Diener three-point shot won their first TBT and split a million dollars. Travis, of course, was an outstanding player at Marquette, six years in the NBA. Most recently, uh, he has played in Italy, where he is a dual citizen. Travis uh, has played on the Italian national team and at 38 years old is playing in his final season in Cremona Vanoli, a, uh, a team in the, uh, in the Liga Due. They're in the second division of, a, of the Italian Basketball League, and Travis is a well-known figure over there. Also, Dwight Bikes, who played last year in China, outstanding player. Darius Johnson Odom, like Bikes, has NBA experience. He's going back to Italy as well. The entire team basically plays basketball around the world, and that's the beauty of the TBT. It's a high level of summer basketball, and it's got the reality TV element of drama and pressure because with 24 teams in it this year, and by the way, kudos to the TBT people for keeping everybody safe inside the bubble in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, 23 teams walked away with a donut, no money, nada, zero zilch. But the Golden Eagles came away with a million dollars. And Chris Tyler, I know you missed the championship game, but I know you love TBT, and I want to put things in perspective for you if I can. You ready? Okay. The 450 best players in the world, most of them, play in the NBA. There's probably a handful of guys that are international players who are among those 450 who haven't come over yet. Uh, so let's say 550, okay? But of the other 1,500 greatest players in a planet of 6 billion, I didn't say 6 million, Chris Tyler. I said 6 billion. Many of those guys play in TBT, and it's great summer basketball, and I know you enjoy watching it as well. Yeah, it absolutely rivals Summer League as well. They're obviously the two big off-season competitions in the world of basketball throughout the year. They're both great. They're both a lot of fun. But for me, for the last couple of years, I've just preferred the TBT just because I get to watch these guys. As I mentioned last week, 
I can watch these plays that I kind of forgot about watching when they were in college. I kind of just forgot that they had gone on and, and, and went on to have a career in Italy or wherever exactly. else it is around the world. So it's great to just see them again. They're better players. They play hard. That's a good thing as well. That's what we really saw in the last uh, couple of weeks, how hard these guys play. It's phenomenal. They just, they're diving around everywhere. That's why I got into college in the first place was because they just, it, it means so much to them. They're so passionate about it. And that's, that's really on display during their whole, the whole tournament, the whole uh, TBT. It's, it's fantastic. And then to watch, to watch the guys at the end during the press conference get their payment yes. while they were having their post-game press yeah. conference, that was hilarious as well. It's fun. It was, it was a great And for you, for you, my friend from Australia, there is a NBL element because uh, Jerome Randall has started in this tournament a number of years. He was hurt this year. Um, Scott Machado played this year down under, former Iona and NBA player. Uh, he was in TBT. Um, so there's got, it's got that, it's got that uh, I think Ramon Moore, another guy comes to mind, played, played in Australia. So it really is cool because these guys are playing all over the world. They're still playing at a high level. They come together in the summer. Some of them as former college alumni teams. Some of them like Team Hines and Overseas Elite. They just uh, just like playing together. By the way, DJ Kennedy, another Australian uh, uh, NBL guy, uh, and also a TBT legend. So we had a lot of fun with that. And Travis Diener, Italian League star, the star of TBT. Yeah, and it's a great thing because, as you were saying, everyone is playing. Everyone in this competition is playing all around the world, which means that you've got people from Italy watching because they know these players. You've got people from Australia watching because they're familiar with, yep. with certain players. Everyone around the world has some sort of connection to one of these teams, and that's why I think it's so popular because you can say, okay, I know this guy from playing for my club a couple of years ago, so this yes. is going to be my adopted team, essentially. That's why I think it's, it's, it's got as cult of a following as it does. Yeah. And kudos to ESPN because we were in over 190 countries. And it was really the first team sport televised on ESPN. And uh, hopefully people really enjoyed it. And uh, TBT proved, too, that if you stay inside the bubble and uh, do everything they ask you, the, 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 the testing, the protocols, that uh, it really worked out well. You ready for this number? 0.0025%. Of all the tests, came back positive. So it was a huge success. So with that, a guy that I don't believe is a, has played any TBT, but uh, is you know one of the all-time greats. When we think of New Zealand basketball in recent years, we think of Stephen Adams, uh, but we also think of Kirk Penny. Uh, Kirk starred at Wisconsin, where he was brought up there by a guy who played his basketball in the NBA and then down under uh, in Australia and New Zealand, Tony Bennett. Uh, that connection brought Kirk Penny to uh, Wisconsin. Kirk had some time in the NBA, a great career around the world, a lot in Europe, also came home and played in, in the NBL. And now, as you know, Chris Tyler, Kirk Penny is coaching at the University of Virginia. So uh, this is great. You know, Kirk Penny is a legend in many ways, we get into so many great things in the course of this podcast today. Uh, which national championship winning coach Kirk once broke the nose of during a one-on-one -on -one, uh, a game? I gave you a little hint earlier. As well as the biggest adjustment for him moving from New Zealand to Madison, Wisconsin. And why the NBL is becoming a great place for young stars, especially from America, to go and play. So, without further ado, here's my chat 
with the legendary New Zealander, Kirk Penny. Kirk, hey, welcome to the broadcast. Really glad that you're on today. Great to, have, great to be with you, mate, and uh, just look forward to having a chat. Well, let's tell people what you're doing because they may not realize you are now on the staff of the, of the University of Virginia, one of, uh, one of the NCAA's great programs. You're working for a guy you know well, Tony Bennett. And tell me how your first year as director of player development has gone after a long career playing. Well, I think it's been um, great to get back with a team and with the guys and developing players. I had a year off between retiring from New Zealand Breakers and, and really just navigating what I wanted to do next. And Tony and I have been talking for years and uh, just about the game. We've been, I've known him for 25 plus years since we met in New Zealand. And uh, the opportunity came up and, you know, it was, a, it was a great experience. It really was to see, uh, obviously go back to the, the college setting. It had been a while, you know, 15 years earlier, I left Wisconsin. And um, you just, it's great to be around the game and a lot of young people that have so much energy and they just, you know, they just love to, they're just wanting to be there, wanting to improve. And uh, obviously, as the season went on, we, we had a lot of growth to do, losing three players to the NBA and, and Jack Salt, another New Zealander and captain, you know, he left too. So there was a lot of work that needed to be done. And um, that's probably when you truly see coaching at its best. Yeah. Do you see yourself long-term? Uh, not every player that has a long career wants to make that move into coaching. Is it something you thought about or are still thinking about? Yeah, those are the things that you evaluate as you go. I remember talking to uh, Sean Marks about that, you know, another Kiwi. When he quit playing, you know, he was with the Spurs. And I, I believe um, Pop or RC or one of the, you know, people there said to him, hey, be on the, in the coaching staff and also be in the front office so you can really get a feel if it's business or coaching that you want to get into. And I think for me, you know, being on the coaching staff, I've really had a, a good, you know, a good chance to evaluate it. And, and we continue to, uh, you know, how this all ended was just so strange, you know, where you're really, you're working towards something, you're on a really positive trajectory, at least at Virginia we were, and suddenly, you know, the ACC tournament never happened, and then the NCAA tournament was cancelled, and uh, it was such a strange feeling for all of us, no matter where we were in life, and um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think where I was, I felt like I'm getting the absolute best um, instruction, and understanding Tony Bennett is is one of the world's greatest coaches and, and he's just gotten better as the years have gone on and he still has so much energy and so much drive and um, just being around him and, and the coaches he's assembled every one of them are just they're just good guys so you know you, you just love coming in and hanging out with them every day before I ask you about how it all started who is the better shooter today <laughs> you know, we still we still have he had the odd shooting competition and he's on one leg and he's leaning forward and he's still making 23 out of 25 and i uh, yeah. just you know it's, he's just annoying yeah <laughs> i got it i got it well hey let's 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 start at the beginning because the way i understand it you were a young player uh in new zealand tony had been a first round pick uh injuries in the nba and he finds himself in New Zealand. Uh, how did your relationship start with him? Yeah, I was about 15 at the time and I, he would been with the Sydney Kings earlier and I know he had sent out a fax to a lot of the New Zealand associations and one of them was North Harbour, which is where I grew up. And as it was, he came to 
play there. And for us in New Zealand in 1995 or 96 to have an NBA player coming onto our shores, trust me, it was big news within the Basel community and really within the country. I think the only player that had come down was Hersey Hawkins when he came down for a charity and shot 10 free throws on national TV and made nine of them. And my grandma was like, oh, he's like a machine. <laughs> you know? and, and I remember when he came down, it was, it was just a big deal. And, and they wanted the association and people involved wanted me to meet him and just, um, just see what happened. And we played one-on-one. I think the first day we met, he was just like, Oh, Hey, Hey young fella, let's see what you've got. And, and from that point on, um, you know, our relationship grew and I ended up playing with him as he was the point guard because he, he was, I mean, his handle was just unbelievable, especially back then. Like he really had the ball on a string and the, his shooting ability, you know, the statistic, he still leads in NCAA. It was, we just hadn't seen anything like it. So to play with him was just like an honor at the time. And then I played for him a little bit. Uh, and then obviously I came back and or came to Wisconsin to play for his dad and he was my assistant coach all the way through. So you know, it was just a cool relationship was forged and we've been close ever since. And it's been pretty special to um, just go to work with him again and rub shoulders yeah. with him again after all these years. That's really cool. Now, the first time you played one-on-one, is that when you broke his nose or was that a subsequent one-on-one match? No, that was the first time. <laughs> so yeah, you I wasn't going to mention that it's been so special. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't, I'm trying to think of what happened. All I know is some part of my elbow or shoulder caught his face as I went in. Yeah. <laughs> and you know he was on the ground, blood. It was blood coming. It was. It wasn't a good situation. But and I didn't think he would talk to me ever again. I'm like, what have I done? You know, what have I done? But but you know, if you know anything about Tony, what he just saw toughness and saw you know a respect. And obviously, he saw good things in it, which was a which was good for me. Were you were you apprehensive about leaving New Zealand to go to uh, the states and play college basketball, or had that been in the back of your mind as a dream? You know, as a 12-year-old in intermediate school or middle school in the States, I wrote an essay about I had a dream to play in the NBA. I had a dream to play college basketball for UCLA. I mean, that was the team that you got a lot of footage of in New Zealand being on the coast and, and had a dream to play in the Olympics. And I still have this essay. And it just, you know, there was something planted in me early where I really, really wanted to go to the States. I wanted to play college ball and I wanted to play, play against the best and um, so yeah, I mean, I first touched the ball when I was four, there was definitely something ingrained in me. It was my sport. My brother played rugby at a very high level. He played with over a hundred caps with Saracens in England and London Irish and played for England seven. So that was his sport. We were a rugby family, but for whatever reason, I was kind of the first penny ever to grow over six foot and I ended up being <laughs> six, foot, six foot five. So it was a good sport for me to choose. I was all, you know, and, and I think, um, I've just, you know, I'm glad I did. It worked out okay. Yeah. Well, we we know about Stephen Adams. Uh, we know uh, it's not great, great tradition in New Zealand. It's a small country, but Perro Cameron certainly guys I know because I follow the Olympics and the international game. But what what is what was basketball like growing up in New Zealand? Given that it's not Los Angeles or New York or even or even Sydney or Brisbane. Well, I think there was a a fierce following within the basketball community. I mean, we just we loved it. It's been a minnow sport here for so long because of rugby and cricket and even uh, women's netball. Um, and we, yeah, I think we had NBA action on once a week for half an hour. And that was all the basketball you could get. And then what happened was they had one game. So you'd show one game of NBA basketball and NBA action. 
And then that progressed into having some college games on at, you know, 6 a.m. or in, in the middle, in the early in the morning or early, middle of the night. And, and slowly you got more and more footage. And for those of us that lived and breathed that we just ate it and just, you know, drank, drank it all up and just, just loved being a part of it. Um, and, and just started dreaming of, of, oh, sorry, loved, loved, loved it, but started dreaming of being a part of it. And, um, you know, for some of us, we were able to go there and it was a select few because exposure was just so limited back then. You really, for me, meeting Tony was everything. Had I not met him, it would have been a, a different road. In fact, I remember Utah Valley State coming down and uh, I don't want to call anyone out, but the coach <laughs> kind of sat me down and said at seven, 16 years old, look, I just don't think you'd be good enough for our program. Wow. So, you know, that, that happens to a lot of players. I understand that. But I think... You know, you've really got to go out on a limb to recruit a guy from New Zealand in 1998. You know, you have to. So, obviously, Coach Bennett was more than willing to do well, that. Well, especially, especially in the Big Ten. Yeah, especially in the Big Ten. And obviously, Tony's endorsement was, was massive. But to yeah. see where the game's at now, and I just saw Stephen about three days ago. We were, I, was, uh, I was quarantining after flying into New Zealand from Virginia. And uh, his brother reached out to me. And uh, he, I said, hey, bro, where are you right now? And I said, oh, I'm just, just down at, Mount, at the Mount. And anyway, we walk out on the beach and literally we're about three doors down from each other. Wow. <laughs> so, so wow. I've just been catching up with him and, and uh, you know, seeing what the, what's going on in the NBA from his perspective. And um, Yeah, but the game here is in such a good place. We, uh, it's projected to be the number one sport in high schools this year. Well, was. Obviously, everything's frozen right now and things are in a odd place but what steven's done i think for the young kids just to see what a kiwi can do and you know for sean and i and you know pair all these other guys that played before him that that was a dream we all had and we all you all kind of pushed that you know can down the street a little bit more a little bit more and then you know for and but what he has that that i didn't have for sure is just the physical uh nature just his, he's a specimen and and you can just see um you know, what an impact he can have. And, but we're also proud of him too. We're just so proud of his success and all of New Zealand. He carries New Zealand everywhere he goes. And, um, and then obviously the breakers here have done a lot for the game. And it's just been great to see the game explode in New Zealand and obviously Australia. I want to, I want to touch on all those things. I want, to, I want to go back to your time at Wisconsin. You played for two unique coaches, two great coaches, two, two friends of mine and Coach Dick Bennett and then later Bo Ryan and uh, – Really, in our, in our, as you know, you're now in, in the college scene, two of the best coaches that have coached in college basketball history. What was the adjustment like for a Kiwi to go to Madison, Wisconsin? Uh, you know, play, not sure whether you were good enough to play, I would think, until you got there. What was your trepidation like, and how did you acclimate yourself to everything? Yo, I mean, I hadn't heard of the state of Wisconsin before I was 16 years old. I, I, I'd heard of the Green Bay Packers, and, and that was probably it, and barely, to be fair. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing I had to learn was layering. <laughs> You've, in that climate, <laughs> yeah, yes. you have four layers, or you have a teacher <laughs> in a bomber jacket. It's just not going to get it done. That wind finds its way everywhere. So, I, yeah, the climate was one thing. I mean, some days you work out, walk out to go to class in Madison, and be two, two feet of snow and you turn around and go back in the, in the apartment and be like, is this happening? Am I really going to walk to class? But uh, no, I, I honestly, I, I feel so blessed to have played for both Coach Ben and Coach Ryan. And they really um, set this. And, and obviously Tony was there with me at the same time in his mind. And you can see what he's done and, and all the assistants. But what a great foundation it set for me. 
I mean, both of those coaches have very set systems and they're very good at executing it and getting the players to buy in. And, and for me and my, my skill set or lack of athleticism at times, boy, was that just enormous for me to be able to perform at a decent level. And um, I think, you know, throughout my career too, often you just had coaches that breathed into your game that helped you so much. And, and um, you know, I mean, Coach Bennett was, Coach Senior, Coach Dick Bennett was so focused on defense. And coming from New Zealand, to be fair, I'd never played a day of defense in my life. It just wasn't a, a focus. It was all about scoring. And, um, you know, it was the one part of my game I had to improve to be able to play. And that first year, it was like, you know, you just had, you just had to find a way to stop players and be able to move and understand the, the pack defense and, and what it entailed. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was a little baptism by fire. Obviously, we went on and played in the final four this year. And, I, you know, I was, you're almost floating when you're on the court. You're just so happy to be there and be a part of it. And, um, you know, I, I just, what a, what a great way to start off your almost pro career. Because for me, it was stepping into wooden backboards with broken rims in New Zealand into this atmosphere that was incredible. And then it went on to, you know, yeah. playing pro games. But, you know, it's interesting. Both coaches, have, you know, you obviously were a good enough athlete to play at a high level, NBA and around the world. But re relative to the athletes you saw every night in the Big Ten and non-conference games, both coaches did a lot with guys who weren't super athletes, you know, who, who fit into systems, I think. I wonder if that helped, you know, take your game beyond where you even thought it could go because they, they, had, they had been used to having guys fundamentally sound, tough, but not necessarily as good an athlete maybe as the guy at Michigan or Michigan State. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Let's, let's be honest. The, the coaches that have great systems and everyone knows what they are and they, they have a real deep, um, uh, kind of loyalty to their system. Like they are not going to change, and the player needs to fit into the player needs to fit into that system. When you find those coaches over the course of a season, they're going to get wins. They, they, you know, even if the players aren't nearly as good as the other team, because they're so disciplined and they eliminate losing, they're going to find ways to beat you. And I, you know, I think um, when you find play for coaches, and obviously, you know, I played Spain, Turkey, Lithuania, Germany, all over the place. You've got to certainly got an array of coaches with an array of um, different experiences and sometimes a lot less experience in the coaching ranks. And when they, they flooded between systems and trying, still trying to figure out who they are, it shows in the team. And, and um, yeah, I quickly understood that if you, if you can play for a coach that has a really sound system that he believes in, you, you'll, win, you'll find ways to win. And then, and then you just need everyone else. You know, it's great when you're upperclassmen, like I came into Wisconsin and had, these upperclassmen like Mike Kelly, Andy Kowski, and, and guys that didn't go on to be pros, but they're really high IQ players. And they, they teach the system as much as the coaches do. So before, you know, the first day, official day of practice, you're already, you know, yeah, well-versed well in what needs to be done. Exactly. Um, tell me about the final four that had to be a highlight, 2000. Oh, it was incredible because, I mean, we, we were a team that uh, no one went pro from that team outside of, myself and I was a you know snotty nosed freshman still trying to figure out so what what we're able to achieve just just kind of goes into saying what I was just talking about where we just had this stifling defense that you just could not score on and you know we went we played the number one over obviously Arizona in the second round with you know everyone from Richard Jefferson to Gilbert Arenas to to, to whoever Luke Walton and those guys and um 
when we won that game, I, I just think the belief that just rippled through the team that, oh, wow, we can actually beat anyone in this tournament because of what we've established this year. You know, the kind of, the kind of saying where it's in the dirt. Every day you come in and work for that moment, and, and we were ready. And to, to then make, you know, beat Purdue, obviously the Big Ten rival, Gene Kitty and the Elite Eight to go on to the Final Four, was that the, such a sweet feeling? And, I mean, to be, I was just kind of soaking all in, couldn't believe what I was going through. Uh, and really looking at everyone else's reactions because, you know, they've grown up on Big Ten basketball. They've grown up on college ball all their life. And I'm, I'm kind of coming into it. But, boy, was it, was it just such a, a special situation to, to be a part of and to do it your first year. You know, within 12 months to go to, you know, <laughs> the situation I was in in New Zealand to that, it is unbelievable. Well, I'll tell you a little secret. You, you won that Elite Eight game. I was the coach at the University of New Mexico that year. Oh, and we were get, at the pit. That's right. And you, got, and you guys were at the pit. And, and I was at the game as a fan. And uh, I'll never forget that because this was Coach Katie's chance really to get to a Final Four. He had such a great career at Purdue. And this sure. was probably the closest he got. And then uh, you guys knocked him off. And I think LSU was in the Sweet 16. I don't know who you beat to get to the Elite we Eight. We beat LSU. Know. Stromal yep. Swift and Curry. Yes. I was 16. at that. I was at that. I was at both games because I was kind of one of the hosts. But uh, sure. I was I was there that day when you guys. Uh, oh, that's awesome! When you won in the pit, of course, the pit is legendary for a pretty good player from your neck of the world, Luke Longley. Of Luke course, played at, yes, Luke of played course. at New Mexico, and then later on, uh, uh, Hugh Greenwood and uh, Cam Bairstow. Right. So right. they yeah. they're, they're all they're all New Mexico legends. But uh, you were a yeah. legend that day. Uh, your team was particularly. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you, when it when it ended, uh, when your career, I, I just want to know. It, you have to be you have to have a professional attitude to spend 15 seasons as a professional player. I mean, you got to be wanted. You got to be a great teammate. What is it about? And I, I'm going to use Oceania. I'm going to use. We're, we're going to go across the Taz today, okay? Between Australia and, and uh, New Zealand, there's something about players from your neck of the world that make. There usually I compare you this way, Kirk: tough, competitive, team oriented. What is it in the culture of, of, of New Zealand and Australia that makes guys almost that kind of mold? Well, I think, first of all, the toughness comes in, I think, with the sports we grew up on. Like if you were growing up on rugby or rugby league or Aussie rules, I mean, they're all different codes, even though, you know, if you weren't familiar with them, they look kind of similar. But they are very physical sports. They are high impact sports. And... We just grow up on it. You know, when you're at the bottom of a, a mall or a ruck, and you've got to learn how to cover your ears, cover, protect your neck, protect your body, because there's going to be boots going into your thighs. And, and, and you just have to learn how to be in high physical situations. So when you come on the basketball court, uh, it's nothing, you know. And, and I mean, some of these games we've had, New Zealand versus Australia, the, the headlocks between Tony Ronaldson and and Piero Cameron, some of the legends from down here, you know, two six foot, well, Piero's probably six, six, Tony's six, maybe six, seven, but they're, they're as wide as they are tall. And I mean, it's no joke. That's a serious headlock, <laughs> you know? I mean, we, we used to have road trips. We would be in a pool and nine of the players would be all going at Piero Cameron one on nine and we just couldn't <laughs> take them down. But he's, yeah. he's better than what he was on, on land, yeah. is what we used to say. But there's just this toughness ingrained in us. And then I think, I think there's a real pride where we come from 
you know, during this crisis right now, you're seeing a lot of people take pay cuts. And I was just watching the Players Commission or the Player Association for the Australian League and how all the players ultimately took almost a 50% pay cut up front. And it seems like, well, maybe that's for six months from now. Maybe we start at 10, 15%. But I just think there's a real um, pride and passion for this league. And we want this league to do well. We want everyone that's representing this country, these countries to do well, you know. I mean, I have a, a huge respect for all the Australian players, the Andrew Bogats and and uh, Dave Andersons and all these guys that have played with or against overseas. And I kind of want them to do well too, because they're from my neck of the woods. And, and then if there's a, a Kiwi, well, you know, man, I, I mean, for Sean Marks to be the GM at Brooklyn right now, how, how cool is that? And, and to see his road. And we just have, we have a lot of, um, of, of pride of who, where we're from. And also there's that little, you've probably heard that comment, the tall poppy syndrome where, you know, if you get, pumped up too much we'll we'll cut you back down so you never really we're not very good at advertising ourselves we're not good at self-promotion we, we we're terrible at it because it's the worst thing to do i mean if you were to score a try or hit a three-pointer and celebrate when i was growing up it's like oh what's wrong with him just do your job you know so i i think in our culture it's it's just not it's self-promotion is not good which, which probably isn't good for us at, at many times you know i think yeah but it makes you great teammates. Yeah, great teammates. But it makes you great teammate. It makes yeah. you a great. It makes you a teammate that, you know, you want everyone to do well. Winning truly is uh, the ultimate. It's not personal performance, and um, uh, you know, I, I've probably I think college shows that because, or at least when I was playing, no one no one's paid. Like it's just a real pure version of the game, and the closest thing I've had to that is the national team because. You know, for, for the New Zealand national team, at least, when I first played for them in 99, we, we paid our own way. We wanted to wear that silver fern. We wanted to wear the, the jersey with pride. And, you know, they're still not really paid. So even now, when players come back and play for that team, I just have so much respect for them uh, because I know it's, it's not selfish ambition. It is that you care for your country and you care that your country has a, you know, is represented well on the map. And, you know, when I first played for New Zealand, we were, we were laughed at a little bit. Like when we'd go up against good teams, you could see them down there just kind of smirking, looking at us. And, and we were, we were quite a interesting crew. You know, we had guys, you know, no one's a professional, everyone's working full time and trying to play for their country. And as that progressed, uh, you know, really quickly to the 2002 world cup where we made the gonna, semifinal. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah, suddenly it was like, no one's laughing anymore. This is real. And I think to go through that process, you know, that three years for me, and I got to catch the end of a generation that was outstanding for New Zealand basketball, probably, you know, would never have been known globally until that moment. But within our community, we knew we had, you know, five or six world-class players. And, uh, you know, well, we'll I, I think, yeah, so to a long, long answer, but I just think, you know, there's a, there's a toughness that comes from this culture. And there's also yeah. a team first orientation that comes from it too. Well, tell me about 2002, because that was in Indianapolis. You were still playing at Wisconsin, I believe. And, yeah. and, and all of a sudden you're going up against Serbia. Uh, and uh, it was, a, it was Serbia and Herzegovina. I think it would, they weren't quite just Serbia yet. They were still sure. figuring it all out, but you, you played a great team. Uh, with a chance to get to the finals of the world championships. And that, that was the year, of course, the USA was, a, was disappointing. Uh, Argentina began their golden generation pretty much in Indianapolis. What, what do you remember being such a young player and representing New Zealand 
in, in well, Indianapolis? Firstly, national teams are interesting how they are generationally based. Like you just have these golden generations that come through. It's, it's the same for all the countries and some seem to do it quicker than others. But, you know, when we're playing, you know, just to go back, when we're playing Serbia in the semifinal to get the gold medal game at the World Cup, two weeks earlier, we played Serbia in Braunschweig, Germany, and we beat, we beat them by one point. And um, it was just a massive confidence boost for us going into the World Cup. Like, well, if we can play with Vladi Divos and um, Maric and uh, Stojakovic and all these high-level players, I mean, there's a... That was a great team. I mean, they won the World Cup that year. And, and um, we, we, beat, we beat them. I think the confidence that came from that was massive. And then we were facing them again in the semifinal. We thought we can win again. The one thing that was different for us, and um, I was actually just texting with uh, Dirk Nowitzki about a week ago because he's on the FIBA board with me. And we, we were just, it was a number one play where he's dunking on me and Dylan, one of my teammates. And I'm like, what the hell is this, man? You're dunking on me number one play? But he goes, gosh, you had such a good tournament. And it's just, mama, you, you had those injuries. And I was thinking back to that game against Serbia. And what we, who we didn't have was Sean Marks. And in that, because he had an injury with his eye. And in that game in Braunschweig, Braunschweig, two weeks earlier, he had like 22 and 14 was just a massive factor because of the matchup. He was such, so athletic at the five. And also, he swept the boards. So he was just a great rebounder for us. And when we were playing uh, Serbia in that semifinal, I think we we're up at halftime. And uh, we were coming out of halftime like, all right, guys, come on. We've beaten them. We're up at half. We have a chance here. And in the third quarter, what happened? They just hit the O boards. And they've got, you know, a six foot seven, six foot eight, two guard, a six foot nine, three man. And we just couldn't get rebounds. You know, we're playing good defense up front. But, you know, one of those things when it comes to eliminate losing, you have to get defensive rebounds. And, I just think back and I wish we had Sean. I just wish we had him because he, he you know, if you didn't fully get a, a body on your man because you're rotating or something, he would still come and sweep it. But, uh, yeah, I, that was just still awesome. You obviously, as a competitor, you have that juice in you. We're like, gosh, we could have won that thing. We, we really could have. And I know other teams are thinking the same thing, but once you get to the semifinal, it is real. Uh, but it was just unfortunate we had the injuries that we did and, and um, it would have been cool to put a, a better foot forward. So when I covered, when I covered you guys throughout the world cups, particularly um, I got to ask you about the Haka because sure. that's, that's what, that's what, when, 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 the, when you guys are playing, that became a big deal in, in Indianapolis, as I recall, right. The Haka dance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, there and were just some just, really special moments when we're playing yeah. against certain teams like Venezuela. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh man, this thing's getting heated real quick. The game hasn't yeah. even started. What what um just give us give give the listener like a just a 90-second primer on the Haka dance, the Haka and what it means to the to the culture of uh of the country. Well, first of all, we'd always get ticked off when someone called it a dance. Oh, okay. I mean, okay, good, good. But, but I'll, tell, I'll, tell you why. I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because when you go back, you know, 200 <laughs> years in New Zealand and the Māori tribes, you know, the, the Māori wars were happening. And, and, and this, as an indigenous people, it, it's a ferocious people. You know, it's, it's not like every culture. So they would, perf they would um, it, it's, a, it's a, a challenge. So you would challenge the other tribe with a haka. They would yeah. challenge you. And then you, then it was war. You're fighting, and and you know you've got to win the war. So you know to call it a dance. I'm like, well, it's not like one Maori tribe was <laughs> dancing, and then the other tribe was dancing, and then you went and had a dance. Like, no, this is real. So 
I'd always be like, gosh, stop calling it a dance. Like this is, <laughs> this is, but it's such a cool part of our culture because what I love about New Zealand and I'm so proud to be from here is, is how it's, we've embraced our culture, you know, and obviously European settlers have come. It's a, it's a part of the history of the world and, um, and it's no different here in New Zealand. And, you know, for the, from the European standpoint, or for my family coming from England in 1941, when the population of Europeans was 2,000, uh, so the pennies were some of the first to get here. Uh, you know, we, they were just looking for a better life, you know, and, and uh, there's this really cool story about my great, 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 great grandfather who was um, captured by a Maori tribe. And he was going to be killed. And, and what happened was he was just really good at fixing things. So he ended up fixing a whole bunch of muskets for the Maori tribe and they were so happy with him that they let him go. So I'm, I'm here living today. So, <laughs> That's pretty you know, cool. Just, it's just a real, a part of our heritage and a part of mine. And I, I take great pride in, in doing the haka, even though I arguably have no Maori in me. I'm, I'm from up north and I don't think I do, but uh, it's, just, it's just cool how our heritage is, is just so valued and, um, and cherished. And, and there's so many countries where that hasn't happened. And it's such a delicate thing too, especially when it comes to land and things like that. And, and I mean, there's just no easy solution. But, uh, you know, as I went on in my 15 years playing for the national team, every year I wanted to be more and more engaged in the haka. And, and I was never great at it. I never right. had my cup of haka courses <laughs> in high school like some of these young kids do, and they're so good. Yeah. But uh, I, I took a lot of pride in it. Did anybody, did you intimidate, was there any team that you thought you might have intimidated with it or it just was just part of the celebration of New Zealand basketball before a game? Well, I think for us too, it's, it's such an opportunity to get up and ready for the game. I mean, if you're ready for every game you play, you've, you know, the chance of winning, you know, lifts, you know, exponentially. So, you know, I think we just get up. It's a chance to share our culture that we're really proud of and, um, I think a lot of every team has a different response. You know, the U.S. team brings out their phones and starts videoing it, and the and the Venezuelan team wants to they wants to want to do their challenge, which we completely respect. And and you get all sorts of all sorts of uh, responses. Do you? I know. I don't know if this is touchy, but do, will do you think Stephen will ever play for the national team, or do you, you don't know if the opportunity is there? You have to qualify for the Olympics, World Cup. Sure, the, yeah, the Olympic qualifiers, and and you know. They're going to happen next year now uh, with the same dates. That's the plan. And oh, pretty much everything's pushed back a year with the Olympics, obviously. But, uh, you know, I really think he's a tough one because we would love for him to play for the country and um, he would make a big difference. And, and really, I don't, you know, just, just his presence and his defense, his rebounding, and then whatever scoring he would give and his passing, he's just such, he's such a complete player and he's, he's really improved. And he's a tough one though, because he's, um, he's doing so well professionally and he's achieving so much that his whole schedule and training in, in many ways does need to revolve around the NBA season uh, because that's really, that's his bread and butter. That's his ability to be enormously generous at times. And, you know, he's able to do that. And I, uh, I don't know. I think it's just, it falls in his lap and, and I am certainly not one to comment on it other than it would be great if he could put on the black singlet at some point in time. But if he doesn't right now, man, I completely get it. You know, having gone through all the NBA workouts and trying to get to a certain level and then to see him just break through that, like, oh man, I, I get it. Like, 
and, and he's a good guy. You know, he's a, he's a hell of a good guy and he, he cares enormously about New Zealand and there's no doubting that. So I think, you know, for, for him, it's a, it's a timeline that will be on, on his terms and that's fine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you're, I'd love to know about your time in Europe. You, you play for some of the great teams in Europe, you know, the great, the famous uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv, you played in Zalgiris, you know, in Lithuania and Spain, uh, Turkey, you were everywhere. I just want to, you know, what, what, tell me about, tell me about the most fun places you played to play as a basketball fan. That, that's a better question. As someone who loves basketball like I do, tell me about some places that you wish a basketball junkie would go to see a game that you played okay. in. You know, it's funny how everyone approaches their career differently. Uh, had I been in the NBA, maybe it would have been different. But with Europe, I've got that little Kiwi Aussie in me where it's kind of an, it's kind of an OE or an overseas experience. So I never yeah. really wanted to play somewhere more than a year because yeah. I wanted to experience life right. and cultures. And yeah. um, it's probably, you could say, oh, he wasn't very good. He couldn't stick very long. But I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's just how it played out. But I feel in hindsight, what a colorful career. And I remember talking to a buddy of mine came to New Zealand. Uh, his name was Mark Tauscher. He was the offensive line for the Packers for Favre and for Rogers. And for, he was a four-year player at Wisconsin, 10-year starting pro with the Packers. And, and we're just like talking about our careers. And I'm so envious of his career. Man, imagine if I could have played for the Bucks or something for 10 years. How cool would that have been? Exactly, yeah. Or, or some team. And, and yeah. he's like, but look at your career. Look what you're <laughs> able to do. Man, how cool would it have been to live in Germany and Israel and actually live there and breathe in the culture? So in, in some ways, he kind of helped me just appreciate my career. This is still with five or so years to go. Uh, but some of the coolest places, I think Maccabi Tel Aviv has to be up there. We're... A, we had a team that was going for a three-peat of the EuroLeague. Anthony Parker was our star and MVP. Penny Gershon was coaching. And, you know, we traveled with LL on our own plane. And we were the first team to beat a NBA team in the States, I think, which was, was quite a cool achievement. And to watch, you know, Anthony Parker go at Vince Carter down the stretch, just banging shots. And um, it, was, it was, you know, just an amazing team to 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 see really i mean they take israel takes a lot of pride in that team in maccabi tel aviv and, and the the fans in tel aviv and all of israel whenever you're playing a yearly game it's a big deal it's yes. a real big deal M much and like you go Lithu down and play sorry no much like lithuania right with with Jalgiris. Oh, yeah, same in lithuania with Jalgiris and and yeah. um you know that was Sabonis's team i played it up there and they just, I mean, they do a great job of developing players. I, I thought, you know, all the Lithuanian team, uh, players on my Jalgiris team ended up being the national team I had to go against for the next 10 years. You know, I remember, you know, I, I was running, I was helping run the Euro camp in Treviso, Italy, and we had Kalnietis, Machulis, uh, sure. all those young guys. They came up in one generation, right? They were... They were all my teammates, young Kunis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Paulus and Jonas and um, yeah, yeah, Young Young Kunis, the lefty. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Paulus Young Kunis. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they were they were all my teammates, and they were all so young. And man, I, I, at the time, I was like, these guys are really good. Yep. And yep. and you know, every time I'd have to play them with my New Zealand team, I'm like, <laughs> oh, geez, here I go again. I go against my old guys, but I I yeah. want to play well because obviously we have history. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a generation that they had that was, you know, often top three in the world. Yes. And, yes. Um, you know, for a population of four or five million that Lithuania is, gosh, they have so much history and so much pride. And, 
You yeah. know, I think, you know, playing against Latvia and uh, Estonia and then Russia, you know, when you go against the Cheska Moscow, I think, like, whoa, it's a, it's a, oh, yeah. it's a big deal. Uh, yeah. So, you know, in terms of all the places I've played, I just think the fans are just so, they're insane with the rockets <laughs> and flares and you come out yeah. at halftime and everyone's smoking cigarettes and you can't even yeah. see the, three, the, the rim from the three-point line. It's just such a cool... Such yeah. a cool experience to see how engaged they are. And then the fans all have songs for every play, you know, right. the singing and all those things culturally, I think it just, we don't see it really in the States or even Australia and New Zealand. And I, I just thought it was just so cool to be a part of, you know, and, and just so different to what I'm used to or, or, you know, crazy things happen. Like, you know, you're sitting there playing in Olympiacos and you're watching these guys like light coin. They're like lighting these coins and getting them real hot and then trying to fling them at your legs. And then yeah. you know, I'm with Maccabi. So that you've got like Mossad agents with you running over and ripping them out of their seats. And it's just like, what is exactly. going on right now? But just, just a load of just really special, unique experiences. And, um, yeah. and I just, just thankful for them all looking yeah. back. Who did you put? Who did you play with and against before they became famous? Like, were there any? I I knew the young guys in Lithuania, but was there anybody you played with or against when they were eighteen or nineteen? And then all of a sudden, like right now, they might be in the NBA or have played. Yeah, I in the played. NBA? I played. Um, I played in Sevilla with. Uh, oh yeah, Porzingis of course, and yeah, Gomez and those guys. Yeah. And I remember getting fielding a few calls as you do with from NBA scouts, just like, hey, what do you think of him? And I'm like. Seven four absolutely loves the game. Yeah, he's slim, but man, he's pretty good. And and uh, and, and I mean, Aubrey Caspi was the young kid on the uh, Israeli team I was on. And I don't. I mean, I, I'd have to think about it. But across the board, you keep you always had these young kids that were a little fen- that were phenoms and ended up being a very good pros. You know. Yeah, I think my good friend Audie Norris was in Sevilla, the big guy who was a great Spanish player. Yeah, Audie was player. there with us. Yeah, yeah. Audie, was, Audie there. was there, and he was helping train yeah. the big guys, right? He was... Absolutely. Yeah, they had a kind of a, a eclectic mix there of um, Spanish and Americans, and yeah. Um, were you yeah, there I mean, with Scott? Was... Were you there with Co- with Scott Roth, who was a former well, Badger? How was... I joined there mid year, so Scott Roth was recruiting me as a former Badger and a buddy. <laughs> and the day I arrived, <laughs> they Scott Roth. Is let go and Luis Casemiro comes in and and I'm like oh hi Luis I guess you've got me. <laughs> but we ended up going the second half of the year. We had the second best record in the ACB behind Barcelona, so we yeah. ended up having a really good finish. And obviously, Kristaps took that into the next level, getting drafted yeah. the following year. Yeah. What what what's your? What, um, I'm just curious because you're now going to be back. You're now back at the college level. That you know, I try to explain to American basketball fans the difference between how good the Euro League versus let's say the ACC or the Big Ten would you describe it for people well <laughs> I mean first of all there, there's two massive differences and and it's a pro it's a pro and a con for each in terms of Europe the the IQ the understanding of the game is so high and the offenses and systems that Obradovich is what what these guys are running is such high quality and you can get so much out of your players because they're pros, right? And they're pros at a very high level. They've either been in the NBA or they're fringe. And, and, you know, there'll be NBA players that go there that don't perform well at all. They'll be completely exposed because it's not athleticism based. Uh, So, but, but then with college, you take the ACC and you take the athleticism on defense and, and these kids play it for 40 minutes. Like there's no quitting. And, you know, you're playing against Duke and, and some of these long-limbed athletes, 
that's really, really good. And a lot of stuff doesn't work. You can run all the, the cutest offenses in the world, but it's not going to work. So I really think there's a lot of respect that goes into the athleticism of the ACC conference. And obviously I have a huge respect for EuroLeague and just the um, complexities of what you run and, and, and the high IQ of players. I mean, they're, they're great basketball players. Great. So it's never good to compare because there's so many factors involved, but, but those are two things I draw from it. Just Yeah. Well, the EuroLeague guys are men. They're, you know, yeah, 25, they grow, it's 20. completely different. I mean, I yeah. could go out now against these college kids and, and being a grown man against 18, 19, you just, you're, it's a completely different place physically uh, mentally and, and just purely your, your understanding of the game. You, you, I could not move, but because I'm able to just know my angles and know, know the reads, you'll be able to get looks. So, but that's, that's not really fair because 12 years from now, they're going to be completely different players as well. And, exactly. and a lot of them will be in, in the pros. So I'm going to get you to talk about yourself here because last year when you were retired and you had that, I call it gap year between trying to figure out what you want to do, Tony and the staff, they utilized uh, you as a consultant to the, to what they were doing offensively. And I'm wondering how that was for you. What, I mean, it, it, was it just your background about being, being around so many coaches and so many systems that you were able to share some ways to continue to make the, you know, them better coaches? Well, first of all, let me say, they did everything. They won the national championship. <laughs> I, I was absolutely nothing in the whole scheme of things. But yeah. I will, I'll just lay out what happened was... Yeah. Um, Tell the story. Virginia, Tell the story. Virginia lost to UMBC, yes. first number one seed to lose. And, and you know, the one thing about uh, Tony, man, he is not... Um, he's so good at adjusting. Even in the middle of the year, who's playing well, what's happening. He's just the absolute master at reading his team and adjusting. And, and I think he was just searching for, we need some solutions offensively. Clearly, we're the number one defensive team in the country. We have a great system. It's, it works well at this level. But offensively, what, what else can we add when we've got these, these good pick-and-roll players? We've got guys roll, you know, that can roll on the rim and, and, and can you know, uh, finish at a really high level uh, because you know, traditionally, a lot of it's been running off screens and shooting you know, within the system. So we, he just asked me point blank, like, of all the places you've played, what system – do you think could help us or what could work well? And, you know, I was just, I kind of thought about it for, for a while and, and was just thinking, well, maybe, maybe the system we worked, even though it's a little bit archaic in, 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 in some respects, because it was a while ago, was what we ran at Maccabi Tel Aviv with Flo. But the thing about that offense, it really had already infiltrated the Australian national team. The We're talking about the, we the ball. The breakers. The ball screen continuity stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of ball screen continuity. Yeah. And, and really, it's a lot of reads. Like, it's hard to defend because if you've got the right players in the right situation, you know, like any system, if it's Princeton or whatever it is, depending on what the defense does, if, you know, dictates what you're going to do. So, but what it did, it was just a different look because, you know, what, what traditionally what they run really is, is quite, um, it's, it doesn't spread the floor as much. It really does compress everything around the keyhole. Where what this did, it just really spread the floor out and allowed guys to, you know, you really put pressure on help side defense. And, and as it evolved, when I was there this year, we ran a lot, a lot of other, other stuff that wasn't either of what we ran the year before because we lost so many players. We had to figure out ways to score points. But, yeah, I was just, I was just playing a small part. I, I mean, I watched all the Virginia games. And it was just great to um, just to be a part of it. 
and uh, help out where I could. And, and um, you know, Tony and the coaching staff did, did everything outside of me just adding the old opinion here and there. And, and what was really cool about that year for me was my wife called or text Tony uh, before the final four and said, hey, do you mind if uh, Kirk comes over? I'd just love for him to come over. He's been a part of your team. He's watched all the games. He, he's uh, talking about it a fair bit. And so, you know, Tony just facilitated, you know, just jumping over there and watching the final four and actually to be there watching the games and seeing him win it and seeing the whole staff in Virginia win it was uh was very rewarding you know very rewarding well you go and back it, yeah go ahead keep going that is great you know, so so anyway so that's really yeah. what the year entailed and then obviously it, it um foreshadowed what which was to come which was to be on the staff this yeah. year that 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 connection came full circle 25 years yeah no no doubt and i yeah. think um i just love tony and laurel <laughs> so much and they've been such a big part of my life and i really do look back on the impact they had in my life and there's the ripple effects massive. I mean, my yeah. wife's from Wisconsin, having gone there, <laughs> I never would have even thought of Wisconsin. You know, I mean, it's, it's massive. So yeah. I'm very thankful to, to the, um, I, I continue to be thankful for yeah. the input they've had in my life. Well, we're going to get you out of here really shortly. I got to ask you about the breakers and RJ Hampton. What, what did you hear this year? How did that experiment go? I know, I know the Next Stars program is trying to get off the ground in the NBL, but uh, what, any any opinion on on uh, those, these high school kids oh, coming over to? Uh, oh yeah, I think with with the Breakers in particular. I mean, I care deeply about this team. It's the one professional team in New Zealand, fully professional, and it's a a pathway for our kids. And and I I pumped a lot of my professional career into playing there and, and trying to grow the game. And so I, I always have my finger on the pulse with the team and. Um, Matt Walsh, who owns the team, you know, talked to me about RJ Hampton and this, the Stars, Rising Stars program. And I think it's a great option. You know, it's probably not what the NBA wants to hear or Adam Silver would want to hear because obviously they're trying to promote the G League. But um, what's really fascinating about it, and I was talking to Dan Shamir last night, who's the head coach of the Breakers, and was my assistant at Maccabi Tel Aviv. So we've known, I've known him for a long time too. And we were just discussing last night about New Zealand and Australia are going to be COVID-free here probably pretty quickly. You know, in New Zealand, we're, we're getting like one new case a day. And we're just wondering, what does that look like globally if players want to play and the league gets started here? Does that mean that, oh, man, I just want, you could have players of all levels, even the highest levels, like, I just want to play. Maybe if I go down to New Zealand or Australia, I can actually play a season and get some minutes and and um, there would probably be some quarantines involved in that. I don't know how it would actually work, but but it will be interesting as the world comes back from from this pandemic, if places are playing before others and what that means for the level of the league in terms of talent and things like that. Exactly. But, and but yeah, for, for the Rising Stars, for this program, I think it's, it's really, really cool to see. And um, it's still, it goes back to what I was saying about a college kid coming and playing at the pro level. It's, it's, really hard to perform even if you're the best in the world for your age you're going against a 30 year old man that's done this for a while and, and he wants you to know he's the 30 year old man oh, he yeah. wants you to feel it so oh. i i think um it's great for the kid i think to get a taste of the pros and uh, it's certainly been another avenue outside of college and in, in, in you know with this one-year hiatus you've got to do, I think it's a, it's an interesting yeah. option. I thought you were going to mention when Ben, ben Madgen flopped when R.J. hit him on that uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ben had been playing in Europe a little too long, so the flopping had come out. We, I remember my, my father telling me growing up, if you flop, son, I won't watch you play. So, That's great. You know, here's oh. a, rugby, a rugby head. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's progressive. It's changing. It's so fluid. All these different things are happening around us. And, and um, yeah, I think it's one thing that, I think it's a positive for the league and it certainly gives it a lot of exposure uh, internationally because, you know, New Zealand, Australia, we're so far away uh, in everyone's psyche geographically. But when you come here, you know, especially from the States, you feel at home almost. Oh, how comfortable is this? This is everyone speaking English. We've got all the, all the amenities I have at home. This is really comfortable. So uh, I think once people come down here, they see that and they're like, oh, if I can just get through that flight, I'm good, you know, and, and I think it's really super comfortable for the young um, U.S. kids to come down because as opposed to going to these European countries where it's a second language and you, um, all my coaching, uh, all the coaches I had in Europe, you know, were coaching in Hebrew or Spanish or right. Turkish. Or, they all coached in that time. Every, pretty much every single one of them. So I had a translator. So to come here and not have that, I think is a huge advantage. And then if you can, you know, develop, you can develop your game a lot quicker uh, in some respects. Yeah, this, this is great insight. We're going to let you go, Kirk. I, you, you covered so many things, like, you know, your playing days, all the things we want to talk about in the world of basketball. So this is unbelievable. Um, can't thank you enough. Hey, great to have you on, mate. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, tell, tell, tell Coach Bennett and everybody back at UVA I said hi, and uh, I assume you're staying safe, and do you have any plans to get back, or are you going to wait till things calm down? Um. Yeah, I mean, obviously we have to wait. I don't think I have a choice with flights and things like that. Everything is frozen. I think as a coaching staff, we're doing everything we can to make sure the student athletes are taken care of. Uh, it's a real even playing field in terms of recruiting. So really, it's about being really creative and, and, and doing things. And, um, you know, being in New Zealand, it typically might have been a big deal. But given where we've gone with Zoom and Microsoft Teams and things like that, uh, we can get a lot done. You know, can I code and do things like that and look at recruits from here? Absolutely. So obviously the world is changing and um, college coaching and is no different. Yeah. Well, you stay safe. You and your family stay safe. And we will see you back in the States next season. I'm, I'm sure of that. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. That was a great conversation with Kirk Penny. I could have talked basketball with him all day. Great career. Uh, New Zealander. NCAA Final Four, NBA, Europe, NBL, and now coaching at the University of Virginia with his mentor, Tony Bennett. That'll do it for this week. We'll be coming to you next week from another place in my world of basketball.